Now you are walking in Paris all alone among the crowds. Herds of bellowing buses roll by you. Love's anguish grips you by the throat. You are listening to Who Reads Poetry, the podcast where we read and discuss poems which hold a special significance for our guests. Our guest today is Thalia Lavigne, and she's reading for us the poem Zone by Guillermo Apollinaire. Thalia works at The New Yorker, where she makes sure that writers get the effects right. In the era where we are all holding on to the sanctity of facts, I'm really grateful for her work. You can find her on Twitter at chick underscore in underscore Kiev. I particularly enjoy her running incisive political commentary and her curious obsession with the herb dill. In this episode, we talk about our dashing poet Apollinaire, who is a French poet, a novelist, art critic. We also talk about transcendence, Thalia's adolescence as an Orthodox Jew, perils of translation, and the wild life of Guillermo Apollinaire, and more transcendence. There is a smattering of us fawning over how beautifully Apollinaire sums up his life in this poem at 33. Okay, there's a lot of it. I hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Welcome, Thalia. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, it has been, this day has been such a respite from, you know, the summer we have had this week, um, thunderstorms and whatnot. I wish I was actually outside right now and we could probably sit in Prospect Park and record this podcast. That would be super cool, but I don't think that's possible. I don't think Brian would love it. Um, no, no, it would be hard. <laughs> the microphones would get wet. A uh, dog would just like poop somewhere nearby. It's... Better to have it in a contained environment. It's okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, we'll deal with this. Yes. We'll make it work. Um, so we are reading a poem today. This is this is this seems like a thing we do um occasionally. Um so tell us what we are reading today and uh maybe a little bit about when did you find this poem? So the poem is called Zone or Zun in French. <laughs> uh, it's by Guillaume Apollinaire. Um, and it's a lovely, long, kind of sprawling walk of a poem. Um, and I found it, so this is kind of a silly story, but um, I grew up in a suburb, the suburbs in New Jersey. Uh, and there was one lovely old bookstore that's still around. Briar Rose Books in my hometown of Teaneck, New Jersey. Go Briar Rose Books. <laughs> They're amazing. Uh, wonderful. Um, if you ever cross uh, George Washington, New Jersey, just stop by. Um, I would hang out there sometimes as like an angsty, weird teen. And I spotted this book on the shelf. And I, it was called The Selected Works of Guillaume Apollinaire. And it had a man in a bowler hat on the cover, like a drawing of a man. And I just really liked the bowler hat. I liked the man. Mm -hmm. And it was the first book of poetry I ever bought. A first um, book of poetry. This is so exciting. Yeah, no, it was really, I was 15 or 16. I mean, not 15, probably. And I started reading it and boy, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it, it was the first time I'd really engaged with poetry outside of like a class context, a school context it felt like I had this little secret journey in my pocket. Um, and he's such a beautiful poet Apollinaire. You know, he's so whimsical. And um, it was the first time I'd read something in translation that had really moved me. And then I discovered he coined the term surrealism, which he did in his life. Oh, oh my God. Uh, we, we have to talk about how he coined every term in... Uh, the avant-garde artist movement. I know he was cubism, surrealism, orphism, so many isms. It's it's kind of it's kind of incredible. He was an amazing guy, and he died. <clears throat> he was only thirty-eight years old when he died, uh, but he was this absolute giant uh, in in definitely in the, the avant-garde art world of France. And from learning from the introduction to this book uh, that he had coined the term surrealism, I gained an interest in surrealism. I became obsessed. So this was a gateway drug. Yeah. And let alone like I spent, you know, I studied translation in college. Like this, this book, this poem 
opened a lot of doors in my life. What was happening in your life around that time? You, you, you mentioned the term angsty teenager, which is I think every teenager, we should stop saying angsty teenager. It should just be teenager and it should be understood. I mean, maybe uh, every teen feels this way, but I feel like I was a particularly angsty teenager. Like I was kind of, I grew up uh, in like a New Jersey suburb. I went to an Orthodox Jewish school. I wasn't particularly religious or faithful. I was quite rebellious in that way. <laughs> um, and I think there's a particular kind of angst you get in the suburbs of like, you're surrounded by green lawns and like very carefully manicured tranquility. And then as a teen, your self is just this turbulent mess. Uh, hormones and uh, love and desire for love and sorrow and all this stuff. And And I felt like the language of these poems like tapped into that in a way that I hadn't yes. experienced before. It was so exhilarating. I was like, here's an art form that can get at like the immediacy of my own emotions. And that yeah. doesn't, that doesn't bullshit around um, what is difficult to express, but just like takes a hammer, takes your emotions and like tries to shape it or like takes the world and tries to shape it in the shape of your emotions. It's like very powerful. I, I feel you. I feel you. Um, I actually have to confess something. I feel like if suburbs are brought up, I have to say this out loud, which is that if I ever move to suburbs, somebody should call the police <laughs> because I probably turned into a serial killer. Mm. Um, no, and that's fair. Like I, Teaneck, New Jersey was where I grew up. It was my gilded cage. Um, and that was a really, you know, in looking back, I think I romanticized my teenage self a little bit. But one thing that was definitely true is I was super productive. Like I wrote all the time. I had so many emotions and so much energy and it all spilled out in the form of writing. You told me that you wrote 230 poems on consecutive days. That's insane. <laughs> uh, we should, um, I would probably... Uh, take an hour of your time after this to just talk about that <laughs> that was in college already but this but in high school so I I read this I got into the surrealists I got into the dadaists uh, you know it was really a way for me to channel like some of the things I was failing into this amazing art that had come a century before you know almost a century now a century um next year Apollinaire will have died a century ago and actually um uh, last week, I was in Paris for the very first time. Wow. Uh, and while I was there, I went to the Père Lachaise Cemetery, mm -hmm. and I visited Apollinaire's grave. And it's this sort of beautiful, rough column. Uh, just as you might expect from Apollinaire, it's, it's not, it doesn't look exactly like the other graves. He's buried there with his wife. Um, yeah. Uh, can I can I actually read what is written on his tombstone? Yeah. Because that really captivated me. Um, it says, I can die with a smile on my face. Which is such a baller description, like epitaph. Yeah. And it's yeah. from his poem, uh, Hills, um, which is a gorgeous poem in and of itself. Uh, it's about, you know, he, he really is loves uh, aviation as a metaphor. And I think it was fairly... It was not old <laughs> at the time. You know, mm -hmm. he, he died in 1918. And so uh, for him, the airplane was the symbol of modernity in so many ways. And so he talks about his youth and modernity. There are airplanes all over the poem. And, and that, that's, it's a line from that poem, which is very beautiful as well. Um, I guess I have to find time to read that one as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> Before we go and read the poem, I just want to say a couple of things um, I, for, for people who are listening. Um, Apollinaire was um, incredibly eclectic, right? Um, and um, zone, um, I, I think in French, is probably more sensual than the way I'm saying it. Um, also, it comes from a poet who basically wrote a lot of erotic uh, fiction. And uh, he, he was the guy who wrote The Exploits of Young uh, Don Juan. And um, he gifted it to Pablo Picasso, who, who considered it to be his most cherished possession. There was actually a movie made um, uh, on, this, on this novel. So 
keep that in mind, listener, before you hear this poem. It's coming from a person who's just, I don't know, out there with everything. Yeah, if I could go back in time and fuck one person, it would probably be a polar bear. Like, I bet he was <laughs> freaky. Is it, was it the bowler hat? Uh, it maybe the bowler? the bowler hat. Maybe the bowler hat. I mean, he's kind of, from the portraits of him, he's kind of a weird-looking guy, but I bet he, like, had it going on. Just, like, knew what to do. Um, and that appeals. And, and uh, well, the other thing um, about him and, and the poem is... is so it's long, but uh, it, it has so it has so many different leaps. It's like a life mm -hmm. story as a poem, um, and it's quite lovely that way. Yeah. So the the first translation of this poem I read um, was in uh, the Selected Works of Guillaume Apollinaire by Roger Shattuck. Uh, <laughs> I think I have it at home, but I didn't bring it. <laughs> um, we will forgive you. Uh, so. I have sort of half that translation, whatever was available on Google Books, and then there's another translation. It's a new one uh, by Robert Lemon. By Robert Lemon, uh, David Lemon. David Lemon. By David Lemon. Uh, and so I'll, I'll be like, I want to start with the Shattuck translation and then pick up with it. So that sounds cool. It's a little bit of a, a mix. I I guess I want to start with how it was imprinted in in my head, and I was such a pretentious teenage francophile um you know I never even went on to learn French but but I uh there are certain lines that I tried to memorize in French at the time you know where he's uh, like you know Berger, Tour Eiffel, les troupeaux de Pombelle ce matin Talia I forbid this this is too sensual for this podcast we I'm will sorry. have to read this in English. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to do this um, in English. So let me, should I get started? Yeah, we would love that. Okay. Zone. You're tired at last of this old world. Oh, shepherd Eiffel Tower, the flock of bridges bleats at the morning. You have had enough of life in this Greek and Roman antiquity. Even the automobiles here seem to be ancient. Religion alone has remained entirely fresh. Religion has remained simple, like the hangers at the airfield. You alone in all Europe are not antique, O Christian faith. The most modern European is you, Pope Pius X. And you, whom the windows look down at, uh, <clears throat> uh, and you, who the win whom the windows look down at, shame prevents you from entering a church and confessing this morning. You read prospectuses, catalogs, and posters, which shout aloud. Here is poetry this morning, and for prose, there are the newspapers. There are volumes for 25 centimes full of detective stories, portraits of famous men, and a thousand assorted titles. This morning, I saw a pretty street whose name I have forgotten. Shining and clean, it was the sun's bugle. Executives and workers and lovely secretaries. From Monday morning to Saturday evening, pass here four times a day. In the morning, the siren wails three times. A surly bell barks around noon. Lettering on signs and walls, announcements and billboards shriek like parrots. I love the charm of this industrial street. Located in Paris, somewhere between the Rue d'Amontiaville and the Avenue des Ternes. Here is the young street, and you are once again a little child. Your mother dresses you only in blue and white. You are very pious, and with your oldest friend, René Dalise, you like nothing so well as the cemeteries of church. It is nine o'clock. The gas turns blue. You sneak out of the dormitory. You stay up all night, praying in the school chapel under a globed amethyst worthy of adoration. The halo around the head of Christ revolves forever. He is the lovely lily that we cultivate, the red-haired torch immune to any wind, the pale and scarlet son of the mother of many sorrows, the evergreen tree ever hung with prayers, the twin gallows of honor in eternity, the six-pointed star, God who dies on Friday and revives on Sunday, Christ who climbs heavens higher than any aviator can reach. He holds the world's aviation record. Christ, pupil of my eye, Pupil of 20 centuries, he knows what he's doing and changed into a bird this century like Jesus soars in the air. Devils in abysses lift their heads to stare. 
Look, they say, he takes after Simon Magus of Judea. They say he can steal, but can also steal away. The angels vault past the all-time greatest pole vaulters. Icarus, Enoch, Elijah, Apollonius of Tiana gather around for the first airplane or make way for the elevation of those who took communion. The priests rise eternally as they raise the host and the airplane touches down at last, its wings outstretched. From heaven come flying millions of swallows, ibises, flamingos, storks from Africa, the fabled rock celebrated by storytellers and poets, with Adam's skull in its claws, the original skull. Messenger from horizon, the eagle swoops and screams, and from America, the little hummingbird, from China, the long and supple pihis, who have one wing each and fly in pairs. Here comes the dove, immaculate spirit, escorted by lyrebird and vain peacock, and the phoenix engendering himself from the flames, veils everything for a moment with his sparkling cinders. The sirens leave the perilous seas and sing beautifully when they get here, all three of them, and all of them eagle, phoenix, and pihi of China, befriend our flying machine. Now you are walking in Paris all alone among the crowds, Herds of bellowing buses roll by you. Love's anguish grips you by the throat. As if you were fated never again to be loved. In the bad old days you would have entered a monastery. You feel ashamed when you slip and catch yourself saying prayers. You mock yourself. Your laughter crackles like hellfire. The sparks flash in the depths of your life. Like a painting in a dreary museum. Sometimes you go to look at it closely. Today, as you walk around Paris and her blood-stained women, it was, and I would just as soon not remember, it was the demise of beauty. Surrounded by flames, our lady, our lady looked down on me at Chartres. The blood of thy sacred heart drowned me in Montmartre. I am sick of hearing the blessed words. The love I suffer from is a shameful disease, and my image of you survives in my anguish and insomnia. It's always near you, and then it fades away. Now you're at the Mediterranean shore, under the lemon groves and flower all year long. You go sailing with your friends. One is from Nice, one from Menton, to Turbiasque. The creatures of the deep terrify us. The, the fish swimming through seaweed is the symbol of our savior. You are in the garden of an inn on the outskirts of Prague. You feel completely happy. A rose is on the table. And instead of writing your story in prose, you watch the rosebugs sleeping in the heart of the rose. Astonished, you see yourself outlined in the agates of St. Vitus. You were sad enough to die the day you saw yourself in them. You look like Lazarus, bewildered by the light. The hands of the clock in the Jewish quarter turn backwards, and you go slowly backwards in your life climbing up to Hradshin and listening at night, and taverns to the singing of Czech songs. Here you are in Marseille amid the watermelons. Here you are in Koblenz at the Hotel of the Giant. Here you are in Rome sitting under a Japanese meddler tree. Here you are in Amsterdam with a girl you find pretty and who is ugly. She is to marry a student from Leiden. There are rooms for rent in Latin Cubicula Locanda. I remember I stayed three days there and as many at Gouda. You are in Paris at the Juge d'Instruction. Like a criminal, you are placed under arrest. You have made sorrowful and happy trips before noticing that the world lies and grows old. You've suffered from love at 20 and 30. I have lived like a fool and wasted my time. You no longer dare look at your hands, and at every moment I want to burst out sobbing. For you, for her, I love for everything that has frightened you. With tearful eyes, you look at those poor immigrants. They believe in God. They pray. The women nurse their children. Their odor fills the waiting room of the Garrison Lazare. They have faith in their star like the Magi. They hope to make money in Argentina and come back to their countries having made their fortunes. One family carries a red quilt as one carries one's heart. That quilt and our dream are both unreal. Some of these immigrants stay here and find lodging in hovels in the Rue des Rosières or the Rue des Coffes. I have often seen them in the evening. They take a stroll in the street and rarely travel far, like men on a checkerboard. 
They are mostly Jews. Their wives wear wigs. They sit bloodlessly in the backs of little shops. You are standing at the corner of a dirty bar. You have a cheap coffee with the rest of the riffraff. At night, you are in a big restaurant. These women are not wicked. Still, they have their worries. All of them, even the ugliest, has made her lover suffer. She is the daughter of a policeman on the Isle of Jersey. Her hands, which I have not seen, are hard and chapped. I have an immense pity for the scars on her belly. I humble my mouth by offering it to a poor slut with a horrible laugh. You are alone. The morning is almost here. The milkmen rattle their cans in the street. The night departs like a beautiful half-caste. False Ferdine or waiting Lea. And you drink this burning liquor like your life. Your life which you drink like an eau de vie. You are walking toward Ote. You intend to walk the whole way home. To sleep with your fetishes from Oceania and Guinea. There are Christs in different forms and other systems of belief. But Christ's all the same. Though lesser, though obscure. Farewell. Farewell. Let the sun beheaded be. Wow. It's quite a poem, right? Definitely. The first impression um, um, that I have is it's so much nicer to hear it in your voice versus reading it in my own head where I don't have the history with this poem that you have. And you're putting all of your energy and some of that, I think, the fermented teenage <laughs> angus that should be bottled somewhere um, yeah. in it. And I think that just gives so much body to this poem. Um, well, you know, what's interesting to me, so I, as I mentioned, I grew up an Orthodox Jew and I lost my faith quite young. But I, so the poem starts with the, the uh, with the, the the narrator is this passionately religious child, almost yeah. like hallucinog like hallucinatory. The way you are religious when you are a child, which is with absolute faith, and you have this hallucinatory moment where he envisions Christ flying amid all the birds of the world, and and Christ as an airplane, uh, and now and then there's that line where it says you you are ashamed when you catch yourself slipping up and saying prayers, and um. To me, it really spoke to me as as someone who had felt transcendent faith as a child and then lost it uh, as I pubesced, right? And like grew up. Uh, I missed it. Um, but I I didn't long for it per se, so much as the feeling mm -hmm. of transcendence that it gave me. Um, and so I think that... What is transcendence to you? Um, well... It's hard to get more transcendent than a flock of every bird in the world surrounded by an airplane. I mean, I remember the feeling of like praying and and thinking that something bigger than me and far from me and beyond time and space was listening. And then I remember losing that feeling and specifically thinking no one's at the other end of the line. Is it some way that, and I'm just trying to pick it apart because I didn't grow up religious in any way, even though, well, my parents had a religion, but I think I just never understood it. And I criticized all the gods. <laughs> and um, in Hinduism, there are a lot of gods. So I had a lot of criticism for a lot of gods. Um, so I'm just trying to pick it apart just to, just to see where this feeling comes from. Is it the idea that you had a sense at some point in time uh, while growing or while growing um, earlier that the world was somehow a connected whole? And as if they're not existing something that came before it is going to exist after it and is going to stay constant throughout change is somehow disorienting. Maybe. I mean, I grew up in this monotheistic way and I grew up immersed in the Torah and the texts and this like literal and um, actual orthodoxy, uh, you know, um, where... I was expected to literally believe every word of the texts I encountered. Um, and everything was about God. You know, we we prayed multiple times a day in school. Uh, I was in a very religious community. I practiced the Sabbath um, for 25 hours every week. You know, no lights, no TV, um, you know, Sabbath meals and so my life had God as this constant presence. And as a young I child, I 
must have felt that I was, re- you know, receiving him in some way that our celebration of the Sabbath was truly like an obedience of God's command. And, and I felt all these things imbued with sacred meaning as they were intended to be, as they were taught to me. And then my relationship as I got to the age when I encountered this poem, you know, had already been complicated. I felt it was man-made. I chafed at the sexism of the religion. Um, I had a lot of different quarrels with faith. And so the sense of melancholy of like losing this transcendent faith really, really echoed with me. I mean, it's interesting because Jews do appear in the poem and, and they sit bloodlessly in the backs of little shops and they're like these sort of tragic figures. They're they're observed. Yeah, they're observed. And I, growing up as a Jew, and everyone I knew was Jewish, that was like so weird to me. Whereas, you know, it's funny because neither of us are Christian, but this is a, a country full of Christians. Uh, and Christianity is very hard to escape. Um, and so this... This poem is really in some way like a passionate pan to Christianity. And so it's funny that it, it struck me so deeply. Mm-hmm. But certain moments of it, I mean, this pattern of it, this returning imagery of like a life burning, you know, uh, life is a burning liquor. The sparks of your life um, yeah. crackle. Yeah. Uh, the sparks of your laughter crackle. You know, there, there, there are so many, and, and like love's hand chokes your throat. Like... There are so many images which, like, uh, at the time, I was just like, oh, my God, this is how strongly I feel things. And yeah, and he expresses it so beautifully and with such economy. I mean, there's also a slightly stilted quality, even to the best of translations. So, like, what I just read was a cobbling together of the Roger Shattuck translation and the David Lemon translation. Um, uh, but at the time, I, I still do. I, I loved and I still love the slightly stilted quality you can get with translated literature. The the way I've heard two interesting analogies I've heard for translated poems is um, it's like kissing a beautiful woman through a veil or it's like taking a shower with your raincoat on uh, uh, <laughs> where you're having an experience, but it's mediated, it's dulled maybe. But um, um, can I add one to it? Yeah, yeah. It is like watching rain from a glass window. Yeah, totally. Or or a tinted window, even. Like, there's this mediating uh, language barrier. But I love that, that quality where it's a little alien, where it's a little stilted, where it's a little foreign. And, and at the time, that feeling was really intoxicating. I think me. I like the practicality of translations because if it was in French and was never translated, it would never be accessible to me. So... I'm just grateful to both both the translators um, for just doing this. And at the same time, I think um, there is a certain lament in me that I can't actually read it in the way it was written. Um, because, well, I have read translations of things that are in my language, uh, Hindi, and um, how short translations come uh, of the actual beauty is like... Um, even if you try really hard, it's just it's just amazing. It's like you think words would translate, right? But they don't. Yeah, I mean, so I went on to study translation in college. I mean, not like I studied comparative literature, but a big portion of what I studied was translation. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, and I translated a book as my thesis. It was a book of uh, essays about aesthetics from turn of the century Hebrew, uh, turn of the 20th century Hebrew. Um, and there are sort of two schools of thought on translation. There are many schools of thought about translation, but two sort of like practical schools, um, that I have, this is like my theory anyway. Um, there's Mm -hmm. like the Dryden school, um, Mm -hmm. named, you know, for, for Dryden and his, his theory, which is that basically you should translate texts with an eye purely towards the audience. So like if I'm translating a 14th century like poem in Latin, I should write it for Americans in 2017. I should write it in American language as if that poet was alive and was writing in America in 2017. And I so, see. 
And then there's the Nabokov school of translation. So Nabokov famously translated Yevgeny Onegin, Eugene Onegin. Um, and he, it's a, a very dry academic, almost <laughs> unreadable, not very enjoyable translation. Um, but the footnotes are another separate entire volume. And uh, writing about it, Nabokov uh, said that his ideal vision of translation was just endless footnotes stacking up towards the sky because you you cannot capture and convey anything from like the spirit of the original language. Mm. Um, so obviously, like these are two extremes, and I, in my own translation, like fall somewhere in the middle and. I feel like these translations fall somewhere in the middle too, or like they're trying to give you some of the glory of Apollinaire. And I'm sure if I were, like I went on to study other languages, I speak Hebrew, I speak Russian, but I don't speak French. And if I did, like if I did speak French, I would appreciate Apollinaire in an entirely new way. But I, this changed my life anyway. This is still such, such a powerful poem. Uh, when I hear it, and when I read it multiple times, I had to read it multiple times. Um, what what stayed with me was this. Um, what stayed with me was a realization that the kind of events that we recount in our head as we are growing older. In this poem, Apollinaire is growing older. You know, he's growing older. He's recounting all his memories of his life. Um, he talks about being on the beach with his friends. He talks about love a lot. Um, he talks about um, his friends. Um, sexual he encounters. Sexual encounters. Well, obviously, I think pretty much the last couple of paragraphs are about that. Um, he, he talks about, he actually names his friends. Um, he talks about um, the sense of weariness. At the same time, he's doing so much, right? Like, you read this poem and you have sense of a man who has lived really freely, right? Yeah, yeah, with, well, with all the intensity of it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there's this line, like, you suffered from love at 20 and 30. And then you remember, like, Apollinaire died at 38. Like, he was still a quite young man when he yeah. wrote this poem. Um, and, and there is this rather charming, in retrospect, like, world weariness of just, like, here are these giant emotions, these moments um and 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 it's everything from like the anguish of love to the pure happiness he describes of like you're writing your story and yeah prose, and you watch the rosebug sleeping yes oh Not my god rose. oh my god did you remember a moment like that it must have stayed with him and like how how polarizing are the moments that we actually remember you know there are either the moments of absolute beauty right absolute suffering or feeling really connected to something else, which in this case was Christ, which in this case was often uh, often realization of the lives of people passing around him as well. You know, all of those things, these, it's only the intense emotions that, you know, that, that he has brought up and that has stayed with, with, with him. And I love how seriously he takes himself. You know, <laughs> he was 33 when he wrote this and he takes himself seriously. Right. And I, um, I feel like when, when I, when I read this, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I feel sorry in a, in a weird way that we don't take our experiences so seriously. We don't, we, when we, when we fall out of love, we don't say things like, I'm afraid, um, that I, I won't fall in love again. Like we don't, we don't, even if we say it, we don't hold on to those emotions in those ways. It's as if there is no time for it. It's like, we are moving more than we are experiencing, you know? Oh, yeah. And and here, he, these are just snapshots of his experience from, you know, lemon trees in Prague to, like, looking at these yeah. Jews to, 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 I love that line. Maybe this will be my new Tinder, Tinder bio. Uh, I humble my mouth. <laughs> by offering it to a poor slut with a horrible laugh. Uh, um, just kidding. That would be a horrible Tinder bio. Um, whatever. Hit me up. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, so he, I mean, and, and you have every reference. You have the Bible. You have Icarus. You have, yeah. you know, uh, 
many of his other poems bring up Orpheus, who is a figure who like recurs over and over. But um, there, there really is kind of uh, so. Also, Paris is a major character in the poem. Yeah, it's a very urban poem. Uh, Paris and love and despair and uh, and then the world sort of like coming into Paris and coming into his life like this, you know, he's in Rome, he's in Prague, he's in Coblenz, wherever that is. I felt somewhat comforted by his fear, which was, um, which he uh, wrote as, as if you were fated never again to be loved. And somehow that stayed with me uh, the very first time I read it, because I think this is such a classic, you know, I've, fallen out of love and this is never going to happen again kind of a thing and I just love that somebody a century earlier from me somewhere in Paris at the center of so much culture and art and very much um, very much a kind of kind of the initiator of all of those things as well in many ways felt exactly the same way <laughs> you know like I have said those words I probably have literally said those words so I, I just had to bring it up because, you know, like, if you distill emotions down to a line, which I think poetry forces you to do, this is what you come up with. You come up with two people thinking of the exact same things and this intense sense of validation that is kind of almost impossible in prose, that you have to kind of, like, finger through 500 pages to get to it. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think every single person has that that fear of I fear I am fated never again to be loved um but Apollinaire it's like it's resolved in such an odd way the poem like you know the night slinking away him sort of realizing that everyone believes in a kind of Christ even if yes yeah which is interesting to me I mean I don't know how much I agree with that then again I'm not Christian but um but it ends with this line and in French it's Soleil coupé, and the sun is a cut neck, or let the sun beheaded be. What does that even mean? Let the sun be beheaded. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's it, like it is such a finality to things, you know? Yeah, it's like, farewell, farewell. The sun is a cut neck. Like, he, he ends the poem in this, like, tremendously final way. But, you know, yeah, it's like the... The liquor you drink burns like your life, your life that you drink like an eau de vie. And then he ends in this very final. It's The ending is as dramatic as as the entirety of the poem, which I love too. I, I, I think that's amazing. And I also think it's a really bold move to write a poem summarizing your entire life at 33. True. I mean, uh, uh, perhaps he had a premonition that he would only have five more years. Uh, he died in, in World War One. Um, from a head injury, which is such a bummer because he was great. Um, and there are portraits of him by Picasso. He was responsible for sort of moving the Paris art scene to Montparnasse, that neighborhood, um, where I really was just staying. Uh, yeah. And I felt I was walking in his footsteps a little. Like, I am no longer the 15-year-old that, like, read this poem and yearned with every cell of my body. Um, and wanted to feel love's anguish and felt prematurely weary, weary at 15 um, and wanted to travel the world um, uh, in the same way that he did and go and like have all these sexual experiences, even though I was like a very horny virgin. Uh, <laughs> I'm no longer that person, but this poem, like returning to it and then going to Paris and reading it and reading Apollinaire and thinking about him like brought me back to her in a in a way. Like, I mean, thankfully, like fewer pimples and I'm no longer living with my parents. Um That's good. But so those are good. But 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 that like depth of feeling, that inner storm is sometimes good to revisit. Um just to get the sense of like just to be to be thin-skinned to everything, from love to happiness to beauty to despair like sometimes it's good to sand down our skin a little and look at the world I think that's what the best poems make us do and 
this poem does that for me. Um, so when I, uh, I, I really wanted to know him because he talks about his life all the time. He talks about going to jail. And I was like curious, what did he go to jail for? And turns out it's a very dramatic story. He was suspected for stealing the Mona Lisa. And somehow Picasso was also involved. It was, it's, it's, it's quite the story. But leaving all of this aside, like I really wanted to know him just because of how in a way autobiographical this, this poem is. And I was just utterly, utterly surprised to find out that he wrote so much erotica and just the kind of lives he um, lived um, give you like a sense of, um, I think, I think wonder and also like, I don't know, some some hint of secret sauce of, you know, this is where his poetry comes from, a sense of that. Um, do you think you can write poetry if you don't live dangerously? Oh, well, uh, ask Emily Dickinson, uh, you know. Oh, yes. I think some great poets live, uh, drink a burning liquor like like your life, you drink your life like like an eau de vie. Uh, other times, poetry is born out of stillness and imagination. Um, Apollinaire was clearly the kind of person that drew poetry from his own extraordinary life. Um, one great line that I want to highlight: this he's talking about. He's in this bar full of a uh, big, big restaurant, and he's and he he's talking about the women, and he says, "All of them, even the ugliest, has made their lover her made has made her lover suffer." And I remember thinking, I want to make my lover suffer. I want to have a lover. <laughs> I want to make him suffer. I I am suffering. You know, I suffered from a terrible case of unrequited love. Uh, he actually calls love suffering. So I almost think that he thinks that they have made somebody fall in love with them, not merely like some kind of uh, twisted tormenting. I, I'm not sure if I'm right in this, but... He 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 really he really thinks love is suffering, and I I completely agree with him. Um, yeah, hey, I mean it's it's suffering as often as it isn't. Uh, uh, I mean, and sometimes I still think of lines from this poem, just out of the blue. The sparks of your laughter gild the depths of your life. It is like a painting hung in a somber museum, and sometimes you go to look at it closely, and I just hold that. That's held in my heart. You know, you can't, you can't replace the feeling of the first poem you fell in love with at fifteen, just like you can't replace the feeling of the first person you fell in love with as a teenager. And so, so I true. wanted to, I wanted to bring my teenage love to you, Neha. Oh, and thank your, you so much. And to your audience, fall in love with Apollinaire. He's very lovable and weird and magnificent, and he'll take you away like a scarlet ibis into the sky. Um. I, I, when, when you say this, I kind of imagine you uh, walking uh, somewhere in Brooklyn I, 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 and kind of opening up these like four large sheets and shuffling through them. It's like, this is the line. This is the line I live by today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a long, long ass poem. I haven't memorized it. I've memorized other poems, um, but elements of it still return to me just because I thought this was what like being an adult would be like you're has suffering it, has it, has it you're come sitting down under to? lemon trees you know you're 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 in love and you pity the scars on your lover's belly it's somewhat like that I mean he just kind of skips all the great parts in between where you go to work and you come home and you go to work and you come home and you go to work and you come home and then <laughs> and then once in a while you're sitting under a tree and you see a bug and you stare at it and you remember you're alive and there are beautiful things all around you. Yeah, that is so true. One thing, um, <laughs> this is so silly. And I think, um, Apollinaire also invented something called calligrams, which is basically a painting with words. So you, you have, um, you have basically a cloud and rain, uh, a a kind of a sketch of a rain falling, except it's not rain, it's words and it's poetry. And they're called calligrams. Like a, yeah, it was in the shape very... of a heart or in the shape of an Eiffel Tower. I know. In English it's called like form poetry. I think. For... Oh, I did not know that. Uh, yeah, like where, you know, 
and we I think I did this as a kid. It's like you really like you did like a poem about a rainbow and the shape of a rainbow. But um I'm clearly very behind on these, oh no, he these came in, up with it. These and it inventions really in poetry. Uh and it was awesome. I mean, he has one that's like in the shape of a stagecoach and yeah. And it's wild. I loved It Rains. It, it rains, it, yes. It's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it's raining the voices of women as if they are dead, dead. even in memory. Yeah. Oh, and my God. And then the final line of that poem, it's like four long lines of poetry, kind of like the curves of rain. And the last line is like, listen to the sounds of the bonds falling away from you above and below. Oh. And yeah, it's so beautiful. And you're it's like, just... how did you do that in the shape of rain and make it so pretty? I know. And, and, and. And and I think I think some of it is about like how he's kind of like combined, you know, his interests. Like he was interested in calligraphy, right? He's uh, interested in words. Clearly, he's a poet. Mm-hmm. He's been writing so much, and all the moonlighting as an erotic fiction writer definitely helps. Oh yeah. And 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 then he's hanging out with like every painter that you've heard of uh, from that era. You know, all the Picassos and Picasso's children, I suppose. <laughs> um, so and he combines all of this. So you have painting, you have poetry, and you have calligraphy. Yeah, Isn't and they're beautiful. Cool? They're beautiful to look at too, especially the stagecoach one. It's really cool. He makes like wheels out of words and a little body of a stagecoach, and it's a beautiful poem too because he's so <laughs> unfairly good. Yeah, uh, just amazing. And uh, so the calligrams are really fun. Um, I'm like, and I think Il Pleu is like a genuinely, like it rains, just, is like a genuinely a poem. gorgeous poem. Yeah. Um, so there you go. I mean, sometimes I think formal restrictions can make poems better, like sonnets and sestinas and whatever. Some of them are really gorgeous. I think he particularly gave himself a challenge and excelled. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like, I'm going to make a poem the shape of an Eiffel t- the Eiffel Tower and it's going to be super gorgeous. <laughs> um, coming, coming back to something that I think... Um, um, particularly stayed with me throughout this conversation is is your your idea of faith and your desire for it and your your parting parting from it. And um, what do you hold on to today? Well, um, so one of the, the the guy I translated for my thesis, Mika Yosef uh, Berdachevsky, has this poem, uh, this essay about what like the Hebrew poet is, and a line that sticks with me is he sort of is like. Um, he imagines the Hebrew poet as like standing, uh, looking in at a religious school and feeling like to- like drawn towards the light of home, but no- knowing that he will never really belong there again. And then he stands at the crossroads and speaks his poems, is the word, like the line. And I feel that way. Like my family is religious and here we are sitting podcasting on a Friday night. Uh, and I... And you walked into this room, and you have to hear me out. You walked into this room, and you asked for alcohol. I did. I was like, listen, we're going to discuss Apollinaire. Well, Apollinaire also has a, a an entire poetry collection called Alcool. Like, That's where this poem comes from. Yeah, from... Al- it's called Alcohol. <laughs> so it was very appropriate. So it's apropos. It's not that I'm a lush. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so I think... Right now, I mean, I don't have the simple faith I had as a kid, nor do I necessarily long for it. What I have instead, in lieu of God, who I have parted ways with and don't miss, um, is these very occasional, I wish they were more often, moments where I feel transcendent. Sometimes it's when I've written something that I love and feel like really communicates what I want um, to say, I write essays mostly. Um, sometimes it's just a moment you're walking or it's, it's dawn or it's a gorgeous sunset and you feel this moment where you rise to the brim of your skin and you are more than who you are. You can forget everything just for a second. And, um, it's not a faith per se. It's a little amorphous, but those are where I find meaning anyway. That's wonderful. Um, so, Apollinaire, and you, as a te- angsty teenager, I hear, and Apollinaire, and you today, a very strong-willed New Yorker <laughs> who walks into a room and demands alcohol. 
What do you get from Apollinaire today? It's different. I mean, some of it, like I said, is revisiting who I was. And, and, and the other part of it is I want to see my life like he does uh, or he does here as this stitched together collection of profundities, like profound moments. And, uh, and I think that it's a good lesson that, you know, so many of these images are, are like could be banal, you know, remembering going to church as a kid walking down a street and seeing the workers going along or going to a, in a museum or, um, you know, being in a, a boat. Um, and I guess what I take from Apollinaire is to look at every moment of my life as, as if it could be a line in a poem uh, and to stitch together my life like that um, and hold that quilt, like he says, as if it is my heart. That is beautiful. And on that note, Talia, thank you so much for coming over here. And uh, it's, it's been so good talking to you. And I hope anyone listening also has a sense of um, kind of beauty that I've had sitting sitting across from you. Uh, well, I hope everyone goes and checks out Guillaume Apollinaire. Uh, Guillaume is French for William. Uh, and he's amazing. He will make you feel like there's just a pinch of beauty in your life that there was so really check him out and to each of us i wish more transcendence yay <laughs> yay <laughs> thank you for listening let us know what you thought of this episode on twitter we are who reads poetry if you have recommendations on who we should have next on the podcast or better still you want to be on the podcast please tweet at us again our handle is who reads poetry this podcast would not be possible without Brian Kelly, who very graciously gave it music. Thanks, Brian. You can find Brian at Spilth on Twitter. That is S-P-I-L-T-H. Ask Brian for the story behind the handle. You can find links to the poems and people we talked about in the show notes. We will love to hear from you. Until next time, bye-bye.